To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bankers can make some money out of government picking winners. The question is whether long-term that's for good or bad. From Bloomberg News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, Bloomberg's editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, talks about the post-bank crash world. John, how are you enjoying springtime in London? I am. It's it's back to the traditional British weather of raining, although there's a brief burst of sunshine right now. Well, I came looking for you to see if you had come on the show and take a step back from the news to put a larger perspective on the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank and then the sort of very long slow-motion failure of Credit Suisse. But it turns out you were not quite coincidentally, in Edinburgh, Scotland. Yes, I went <laughs> I went up to Edinburgh to do a little bit to promote Bloomberg UK. But we had a dinner at a place called the Library of Mistakes, which I would argue is probably about the best single room in the world to consider what has been happening in banking over the past period. And the Library of Mistakes is on the edge of Edinburgh's financial district, And it is dedicated to all the disasters that financiers can do. So on one side, you've got a signed shirt from Nick Leeson, the man who bought down Barings Bank. On the other side, you've got a picture of Charles Ponzi, of Ponzi scheme fame. The books scattered around the library, and possibly one of mine in there, um, they all depict terrible things that finance has done and disasters and terrible schemes. And the whole thing boils down to this aphorism from James Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer that in technology and engineering, progress is cumulative, but in finance, progress is cyclical. And for those of us who don't hang out on Wall Street, James Grant is an investor who writes a pricey and influential newsletter about finance. He has another phrase, John, which I think is also apt. It's a little less lofty than the one in the Library of Mistakes, and that's, we keep stepping on the same rakes. That's sort of the same thing, isn't it? But rather pithier in some ways. Why do we keep stepping on the same rakes? Well, one problem is it tends to be a slightly different rake each time. And the previous rake, you go back to the great financial crisis of 2008, 2009, there you can see the real problem with banks was on the asset side. They had an enormous amount of really dodgy loans, the subprime things we all heard about, all those piles of vertiginous derivatives. And that was all on top of a tiny slither of capital. And so when those loans started going bad, they got into real trouble. And what's happened since then is that regulators have done a great deal to push that. We're proposing a set of reforms to require regulators to look not only at the safety and soundness of individual institutions, but also for the first time at the stability of 
the financial system as a whole. One of the reasons this crisis could take place is that while many agencies and regulators were responsible for overseeing individual financial firms and their subsidiaries, no one was responsible for protecting the whole system from the kinds of risks that tied these firms to one another. Regulators were charged with seeing the trees, but not the forest. One interesting thing about Credit Suisse and Silicon Valley Bank is that actually they had, by most measures, quite a lot of capital. They'd been ordered to have it, and they had quite a lot. The problem with them was liquidity. Suddenly, investors wanted their money back. And again, that's very much what you can see all the way around the library of mistakes. It's like an old-fashioned bank run. If suddenly all your people want their money back, then banks don't tend to have it that much on hand, especially if they've got it stuck in other things. And it's that collapse of confidence which really hit both of them. And we saw it sort of, in, you know, two weekends in a row. Well, first weekend, Silicon Valley Bank in trouble. Next weekend, Credit Suisse. Now, the storm swirling around Credit Suisse dates back years. In March 2021, the lender was hit by a double dose of bad news following the collapse of Greensill Capital and then Archegos, which left Credit Suisse holding the bag on billions of dollars of losses. Now, the Zurich-based bank has also been rocked by legal trouble and instability in the executive suite with three chief executives and multiple chairmen since 2020. And that's the sort of way that this particular financial crisis went. So it was about liquidity, but, and I think this is a really important thing, that doesn't really get the bankers off the hook. Because at Silicon Valley Bank, you know, they simply were not looking at one part, the boring part of what they were supposed to be doing, which is when they took deposits in. They invested them in fixed-rate government bonds, which sounds great and safe, except when interest rates suddenly change. Uh, all the kind of exciting stuff at Silicon Valley Bank was off lending to tech and doing all that quite difficult things. It was the really boring bit, the kind of mismatch between having a lot of short-term people who suddenly wanted their money back and then putting all that on a floating-rate basis and putting your money into fixed-rate on the other side. Meanwhile, at Credit Suisse, you know, I think we could have taken an entire big take to go through all the different sort of scandals which Credit Suisse somehow has managed to get involved in, which is deeply ironic because when you and I started in this business, kind of Credit Suisse was a byword for being rather boring and stodgy. Is part of the problem that when times are good, no one really wants to look too closely, and then when it goes wrong and all comes crashing down... We're shocked to find that capitalists were doing what they always do, which is to try to find any way they can to be profitable. Yes, I think there is that. In each case, I think people were straining at the edges, especially at Credit Suisse. Basically, you've had a long period of low interest rates. It was hard to make money on sort of normal loans, so they started messing around looking for other stuff. And one of the tragedies of Credit Suisse was it seems to get stuck in every available sort of shebang from Mozambique to Russia. And the answer is that Credit Suisse went further and further away from the stodgy stuff. And that was the reason why people began to panic. And once you have question marks about your numbers, you know, there was a problem about how big the outflows were, there was a few accounting things, eventually people get spooked. And that is what happened. John, you and Adrian Woldridge, who's the global business columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, describe that and really where things go from here in a column that you've written together. And in that piece, you take a step back from the news and show how the relationship between 
financial institutions and governments is now being reshaped. You and Adrian write, one thing that happens when people get spooked is that suddenly what you call the fearless free market financiers discover the virtues of state intervention. Yes, and that has happened so many times before. If you remember in the financial crisis, you had a whole variety of people who effectively became government-sponsored entities. I always remember having a colleague back at The Economist, a guy called Tom Easton, who used to relentlessly, whenever we went to see the HUD of Goldman Sachs, remind them they were, they were basically a socialist enterprise because they were backed by the government in distress. Mervyn King, the governor of the Bank of England, had a very nice statement that you know, capitalists tend to be global in life but local in death, i.e. whenever things get tough, they go rushing to their local governments to bail them out. And that sort of is what has happened again. Lots of people suddenly who used to usually talk about caveat emptor and the difficulty of moral hazard and all these sort of things, when America's main technology bank when that got into trouble, suddenly everyone said, well, we must protect depositors. And the same from a Swiss point of view, when they suddenly looked at Credit Suisse. And this is really the problem with finances, because it's in the middle of everything. It's very difficult sometimes for governments to say no. I would be one of those people who, when Lehman Brothers was let go, I was one of those people who thought, well, that probably makes sense. And I think in retrospect, I was probably wrong. There are some times where you do need to keep financial systems afloat for the good of the, of the whole economy. It reminds me of that saying that profits are privatized, but losses are socialized. <laughs> yes, entirely. And that, having lived through several crises, uh, the first thing I ever covered was, well, nearly the first thing, was Black Monday back in 1987. The problem in financial crises is debt. That's the gelignite. Um, there's a reason why, if you go back to the dot-com crash, it didn't really have much of an economic effect because there wasn't that much debt involved. It was just simply um, people massively overvaluing technology companies back then. And people who invested them lost their money and life went on. But it's different when you have debt because that becomes much more systemic. And so as a result of these failures, like it has happened before, we now see the government coming in looking at what happened and are trying to find regulations and fixes to keep it from happening again. But one thing you write is that the government isn't always very clever about doing this, and they're always trying to fix the last problem, fight the last battle. Yes, this is where I think the story starts heading in a different direction. During the last global financial crisis, there were several really important differences. The first is that the main economies the European Union, the United States and China all acted together. You know, they were all there trying to shore up things. The second thing was the whole rhetoric of it, which was, look, this is just a temporary intervention in the markets. You know, we are coming in, we, in some cases they're nationalizing things, in some cases they're doing extreme measures, but we're not, we're just doing this on a temporary basis. What has happened now, and I think that this is what will steer this crisis, is that the whole intellectual environment has changed and the political environment. The political environment has changed because now we have a world of competing trade blocks. And if you 
want an example of two people who epitomise these two different worlds. You have Adam Smith, the great economist who worked very close to the library of mistakes. You know, he believed in free markets. On the other hand, you have Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the finance minister of Louis Fourteenth, the man who people think of about a dirigiste, where the state doesn't leave finance to get on with it. It directs the economy. And what is happening at the moment now is the desire to direct the economy is pretty extreme, not least really in America, which was always supposed to be the haven of free market thinking. You look at everything that Joe Biden has done, and there is a very strong dirigiste flavor to it. You look at the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, buy American provisions everywhere, hang on to good, great American jobs, the tech bill, the chips bill, that is all about cajoling chip companies to come and set up in America. These chips were invented in America. Let's get that straight. They were invented in America. We used to make 40% of the world's chips. There is a very nationalistic feel to American industrial policy at the moment. And you jump across to Europe, and there are people who are horrified by that, saying how terrible it is. But there are also people who are quietly, extremely glad about that, because it gives them all an excuse to have an industrial policy too. And so far, finance hasn't sort of been an obvious part of that. But what has happened in this crisis, I think, is that finance has become part of that. More with John Micklethwaite after the break. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You and Adrian actually coin a phrase of your own in this piece that I found really interesting. You call it national financial capitalism. And you say that we're seeing 
the birth of a new form of financial capitalism, the idea that finance is an arm of the state, is back. And global banking is likely to be reshaped by it. Talk a little bit more about what you mean by that. Let's look at the two takeovers. Silicon Valley Bank. I think if that had been based in Oklahoma, I think governments might have taken a very different view. The point about Silicon Valley Bank is that all the people who stood to lose money in it were effectively, it was American technology. That is the industry that America prides itself on more than other. It's the one that whenever people talk about American competing with China, they talk about technology. So it is not a long jump for Joe Biden to go saying that he wants to protect American technology to he wants to protect the bank that was closest to those technologists. And it would have caused a lot of disruption in the venture capital industry, which is the absolute core of technology. Um, Was it systemic in the same way as something like Lehman's? No, I don't think it was um, really at all. But if you take a very industrial policy angled view of the world, yes, it becomes much more important. Now look at the second one, Credit Suisse. There is no kind of free market world in which it would make sense to allow UBS, the biggest Swiss bank, to take over the second biggest Swiss bank. Consumers would suffer, so on and so on. Bringing UBS and Credit Suisse together will build on the best skills available in the Swiss financial centre and enhance the combined organisation's ability to serve our clients and deepen our best-in-class capabilities. But if your main priority is to keep Swiss finance Swiss, yeah, it makes absolute sense. And so in both cases, I think you can see an element of dirigisme behind it. And I think the next stage is that continues, especially in Europe, because Europe has got this very weird system of A, firstly, it is deeply annoying that the main Western banks, the top five, are all American. Europeans aren't even close. But secondly, they've now discovered that this particular industry can cause problems everywhere. So you look at somewhere like Germany, and I think you're going to see really sort of profound questions happening. So far, the Germans, Angela Merkel thought about it, but they've never thought of pushing together Deutsche Bank which has had a somewhat Credit Suisse-like history of involvement in quite a few scandals over the times, with Commerzbank, which has a lot of retail depositors. If you put them together, you kind of have a German national champion in banking. That's one solution. Alternatively, you could begin to look at a pan-EU system. And that, I think, is quite an interesting one. At the moment, you have all these banks around Europe which are sort of banned from merging with each other. And even American bankers are forever saying, honestly, they should get together. But once you begin to think about this as a necessity of having European champions in a really important industry, then yeah, I think you begin to move in that direction. John, what you're really describing is something that you wrote, which is that governments now around the world are starting to pick winners and losers among industries. Yes. You know, America has picked the idea that it wanted to kind of hang on to that technology bit. Um, And the Swiss government has decided that it wanted to push its two ones together. I think the next phase, it's this idea that governments should pick winners, that finance and government are going to get more intertwined. Once you think through that, that becomes a much more revolutionary idea. There has always been a link between finance and government, and there always will be. But this could take it to a different level. 
And especially when you see it against that repetitive kind of regional economic warfare. From that perspective, it's not something I support, but it does make some degree of sense. Or you can look at America. There, the American banking system is somewhat bizarre. You have these big banks at the top, and regulators made a very obvious mistake of only looking at or even doing stress tests really on the too big to fail level, which was around above $250 billion in assets. Silicon Valley Bank was around $200 billion. But America's sort of biggest problem is that there are loads of small banks. And this goes all the way back to the Great Depression, where I think back then there were nearly 25,000, maybe 30,000 banks. A whole host of them went bust. Roosevelt forced quite a lot of them to merge, again, in the national interest back then, because that was another time where people were turning to the state. And now I think you might well see exactly the same thing happening, perhaps cloaked in the same sort of nationalistic, somewhat FDR-like language. And it will make some degree of sense that actually getting all these small little banks which take a long time to regulate, if the Americans look at the European system and say, come off it, you know, you should start merging and doing it, the same thing is slightly true of the American system as well. John, after the 2008 financial crisis, Washington put in strict new regulations on banks to make sure that they had enough capital on hand and they had new reporting requirements and stress tests to make sure they weren't taking on more risk they can handle. And even with all of that, Bloomberg recently reported that the five biggest U.S. banks made a trillion dollars in the last 10 years. So they've made out pretty well, even with those restrictions. They have done pretty well. The truth is the American banking, from a consumer's point of view, it's a rotten deal. You look at everything from credit charges to credit card charges through to kind of checking and all that stuff. And, you know, somebody goes backwards and forwards. It is fairly Neanderthal. And one reason why is because you have these five big ones and then this variety of small ones. You could argue that if you had, I don't know, 50 banks, you might have much more active competition rather than these few minnows trying to get alongside and there's something of an idea that it's fine to be able to charge these sort of numbers but the underlying point beneath all this is that the regulators yes they took this decision too big to fail they would go through stress tests and it's sort of worked you know they've made sure these banks have way more capital than they have before i saw a fairly prominent financier and he said well it's obvious you know you just put your money in his case it was with jp morgan i think because he said they're always going to be protected, they're too big to fail. That is the lesson of this from a sort of rational financier. One of the things we're finding now about Silicon Valley Bank, of course, is that in 2018, the CEO of that bank and other regional banks said, well, we shouldn't be regulated in the same way as the big banks. You should pull back these very long and arduous, expensive yearly tests looking into our books because we don't do the same sort of things that crash the economy by the big banks. And so they pulled it back in 2018. The legislation I'm signing today rolls back the crippling Dodd-Frank regulations that are crushing community banks and credit unions nationwide. They were in such trouble. One size fits all. Those rules just don't work. And community banks and credit unions should be regulated the same way and you have And now of course it really turns out that as you write they were doing things that you just wouldn't do and if anyone were looking perhaps they would have spotted it and avoided this calamity by saying I don't know maybe you shouldn't put all of your money into bonds It is rather bizarre because it would have been such a simple liquidity test just to sit look and see 
somebody would have said, look, why are you putting all your money in this? They were chasing possibly slightly greater yields because if you bought you know, long-term fixed-rate government bonds when interest rates are really low, you might get a few points more. But it was still a really bizarre thing to do. And there is something rather odd about a place where I think all the action was at the other end of Silicon Valley Bank. And then suddenly they get swamped by deposits from all these people who raise venture capital. And then they just stuff them on the money markets without actually thinking through it. And liquidity... Interest rate mismatches, those are one of the things you get taught about very early as a banker. You know, if you have floating rate, short-term liabilities, don't stuff it all in fixed rate on the other side, because if the fixed rate ones suddenly drop in value, you've got a problem. And that was sort of the way the whole thing unraveled. I do think there will be a change, though, in terms of the way that bankers look at the state. I'll give you two examples. One is, you know, look at UBS. I could, of course, be proved completely wrong about this. But at least in principle, it looks as if by sitting there and saying, no, 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 we, we don't remotely want to take over Credit Suisse, what a disaster. They could well have played a blinder. You know, they have bought their main rival, which we should remind ourselves was, I think, worth $100 billion 10 years ago. They have bought that for three They've got a $100 billion line to help support them. And they've got, I think, another $10 billion of sort of guarantees on top of it. Now, it could be that Credit Suisse has some nasty things in its balance sheet. And we'll discover that. But at least in principle, that looks like quite a good deal. You've also got Warren Buffett on the other side of the Atlantic, offering very generously as ever to take on some of the debts of Silicon Valley and things like that, or at least talking about it. Again, Buffett um, is a famously good man, but um, he's not famed for his altruism when it comes to making money. You have to imagine that he again has seen that there is a path to make money and, and that this will be the same as banks throughout that entire library of mistakes. At different times, banks have had to deal with much more nationalistic governments and they found ways to make money there. If, if you've got a government saying help us build up a tech industry. There are bankers, certainly, who will sit there saying, we can help you. If you want government saying, um, we want you to lend money to these people, there'll be people saying, yes, we can help you do that, and so on and so on and so on. It will just be a different climate. And one where I say that, you know, bankers can make some money out of government picking winners. The question is whether long-term that's for good or bad. We'll be right back. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders. 
when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When things do go wrong, especially when they go wrong in a big way, it's not often the people who cause the problem who suffer the most because they're going to do okay. Maybe they lost a lot of money, but they've got a lot still. It's often the people who are at the bottom in the middle who get hurt. In that equation, is this kind of up and down cycle archived in the library of mistakes ultimately worth it? I will say yes. I will point out that always in these crises, which are, as we pointed out, cyclical, each time there's some sort of degree of weirdness that goes on. So there will always be a bit of that. And there will be other arbitrary decisions and there will always be financiers um, making mistakes. In a strange way, I go back to Adam Smith. He had no doubt at all <laughs> about the um, venality of financiers and capitalists. You know, His creed, although it's often cited as being a sort of very pro-capitalism one, was one which came with a sort of hefty pinch of salt when it came to the actual people who were doing this. But his argument was that as long as there is enough kind of greed and fear, you will get the kind of growth that you should want. And again, I think if you look at the library mistakes, yes, you look at those walls and they are papered with terrible things that have happened all the way around those walls. Ponzi, God knows what. On the other hand, you think what Scottish finance has done around the world. You think of the fact these rather dour Scotsmen, you know, they have financed everything from Latin America to American railroads to Hong Kong, all these different places. They have caused an enormous amount of kind of good to have happened around the world because they were prepared to risk, they were prepared to do things. Some of them got quite rich in the process, so, you know, some people would be upset about that. And of course, that's just Scotland, you know, you look at Wall Street and you look at all the things that it has finance around the world, the city of London, you know, there is so much good. For all the bad things we say about Silicon Valley Bank, through things like venture debt and so on, it was part of enormous wealth creation. Without the money behind it, no, you wouldn't have the kind of technology that we have now. So that is, in a sense, all part of the puzzle. We just haven't found a way of doing it without the occasional catastrophe along the way. Even allowing for those sort of things happening, I would think most people would say, look, a lot of economic good has come from that. And I think there is still an advantage in giving capitalism a bit of its head. And what worries me about this shift to a more state-directed version of capitalism is you end up with a different set of problems, which in some ways are harder to fix. And if you want an example of that, look at what has happened in China. There you have very state-directed capitalism and you have all these problems of 
state banks stuffed with things which they possibly shouldn't be, all the links into local government and all those things. And I think out of the various bits of China that work very well, I don't think people particularly sort of stare at the banking system and think that that's a great bit. John, you and Adrian end your piece on a vaguely optimistic note, saying that progress may be cyclical, but it's usually been progress. Yes, I think that's true. I'm not quite sure (laughs) we're optimistic about the next stage. But uh, yes, I think you look over the long tail and you see all the different ways in which economic growth has pushed things forward. Yes, it has been fairly incredible. I'm not going to sit here and defend why there were, I can't remember, it was $3 trillion worth of (laughs) credit derivatives back in 2008. I'm not remotely going to try and defend why Silicon Valley bankers were to chuck so much money into long-term bonds. And I'm certainly not going to defend Credit Suisse's many weird escapades. But the system underneath it still has quite a lot of strengths and awful phrase about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You don't terribly want to do that. John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Wes. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicky Bergolina. Our senior producer and the producer of this episode is Catherine Fink, with additional production support from Federica Romaniello and Zenob Siddiqui. Rafael M. Seeley is our engineer. Our original music is composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.